Please be seated. If there are any children between the ages of three and second grade who would like to go to Stepping Stones, our worship program for kids, we would invite you to go there at this time. Our scripture passage today is found in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so it will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The Pew Research Center came out with a study very recently where they were looking at the public perception of several of the popular professions in our society. The basic question that they asked of people was this. Do you believe that this profession, people in this profession, contribute significantly to the well-being of society? The ranking that they gave 
On the positive side, first of all, at the top of the list were the military, surprisingly. Soldiers. I know there's some negative perceptions of the military out there, but when you think of them in terms of protectors, I can understand that. They were top of the list, 78% approval, or 78% of people felt that they contribute significantly to the well-being of society. Teachers were ranked number two, 72%. And doctors were ranked at 66%. On the bottom of the list, however, near the bottom was the profession called clergy, 37%. 37% of people said that they felt that clergy, pastors, priests, whatever title they use, contribute significantly to the well-being of society. The only consolation for people in my profession is that 10% below that were journalists. <laughs> and 10% below that were lawyers. But it does beg the question, why has our society, why has our culture developed such a negative perception of people who are in clergy professions. I think we tend to have a knee-jerk reaction as Christians and say, well, it's because our culture has become so much more hostile to the gospel. They've become so much more hostile to Christ. They've become so much more hostile to the church. And I grant you that that is certainly one of the reasons. But we have to be honest, too. There have been some pretty shameful scandals involving people in the clergy in the last generation or two. Scandals over sexual sins, scandals over financial sins and greed, some abuse of the flock, so to speak. And there's been a lot of heresy and a lot of empty messages that have left our culture with kind of a bad taste in their mouth towards preachers and pastors and people in clergy. But we see in today's passage, the verses I just read, that Jesus had a pretty low view of religious leaders in his day, too, so it's nothing new. Matter of fact, in the last three chapters, we've been seeing that this confrontation, this conflict between Jesus, the Messiah, and the religious leaders of the church of that day, the, the church of the Old Testament, Israel, that their spiritual leaders and the conflict between them and Jesus is getting more and more intense the farther we get into the Gospel of John. And it kind of culminated in chapter 9 where there, there was this public confrontation when Jesus hired, or, or, uh, he was able to heal a man at the gates of the temple who had been born blind. He was able to restore the sight of this man. And the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogue actually interrogated the man, and when he eventually sided with Christ and identified himself with Christ and trusted in Christ, they cast him out of the synagogue. And then at the end of the, of the chapter 9, we see this beautiful picture where Christ, like a good shepherd, goes searching for the lost sheep. And he goes and he finds this beggar, and he reveals himself to him. He says, yes, I am the Messiah and the beggar bows before him and worships him, and Jesus receives him as a disciple. In so many ways, that's what we've been building towards, this division among the flock. 
And it's really a tragedy. It is a tragedy when people have to decide between Jesus Christ and the leaders of the church. One of my favorite stories from Presbyterian history is from the early years, uh, the, the early 1600s, back at a time when the ideals, the great biblical teachings of the Reformation began to sweep through the British Isles. You know the great ideas of Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and biblical worship is being instituted in the churches, and this is sweeping through the British Isles, but as you know, in England, the throne would often resist the Reformation and persecute those advocating Reformation. And when the Reformation reached Scotland and pastors and teachers and leaders and people started studying the scriptures and embracing the teachings of the Reformation, the English throne began to persecute what became the Scottish Presbyterians, those who were trying to reform the church according to scripture. And one form of that persecution in the early stages, was for the English throne to actually send out their dragoons to imprison the pastors of the churches, take them out of their pulpits, out of their pastorates, imprison many of them, and then the archbishop of the Church of England would then send sympathetic leaders, sympathetic pastors, in to take over those pulpits. Well, in the midst of this persecution and this this conflict going on within the church, so to speak, in that context, we have a, man, a young man named Alexander Henderson. Alexander Henderson was raised to be sympathetic to the Church of England. And when the Reformation broke out in Scotland, he sided with the Church in England. And he was trained in their best schools. And he, and he was uh, appointed then by the archbishop to take over one of these churches where the pastor had been driven out, had been taken away, And as a result, the people in that local congregation, when they heard that Alexander Henderson was being sent there by the archbishop in England, they actually locked up the church so he couldn't get in. And so Henderson, in order to get into the church building, he had to actually break the window to get entrance into the building to begin to establish his, his pastorate there. And then shortly thereafter, he heard about one of these great Presbyterian preachers that was coming into the area that were getting thousands of people to come and hear him preach the gospel, to preach the scriptures. And he was curious to know what it was about this preaching that was so attractive to people. What, 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 what was it? He didn't even understand the Reformation that was going on. And so he secretly kind of hid out in the shadows in the back of the room and he listened to this preacher begin to preach. The preacher got up to preach and he began by reading his text for his sermon. John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Henderson was cut to the heart. Came under immediate conviction of the Holy Spirit. Went home, began to pray and to study the scriptures and eventually to embrace the ideals, the biblical concepts of the Reformation, and became one of the great leaders of the Scottish Reformation. He largely was responsible for the writing 
of the National Covenant of 1638 for the nation of Scotland. And he was the leader of the delegation of Scottish theologians who went to the Westminster Assembly to help produce the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms. We need a Reformation in churches here in America. Maybe we should have some churches locking the doors to keep their pastors out. It might be a big step in the right direction. Jesus deals with this issue that was rampant in his day as well as in our day. That there are a lot of bad shepherds out there. That there are religious leaders that are actually harming the flock instead of caring for it. And so he uses this extended metaphor. It's, I think I said earlier that, that John doesn't actually, contain, doesn't actually record any of the parables of Jesus, and that's true. There's no parables. This isn't literally, a, it isn't technically a parable. It's more of an extended metaphor, and you English majors can parse that and dissect that all you want. But basically, he, he creates this picture, this picture of a very familiar way of life for cent, first century Jewish people. He presents the normal life of a shepherd, and he starts by describing the sheepfold. Now, the sheepfold was a roofless enclosure. It was usually out in the field or somewhere near to the town, but there, it was an a enclosure. In other words, it had walls. I'm not sure how high. I'm sure it varied. The walls varied in height, but they were high enough so that if you brought the sheep into the fold that they wouldn't be able to get over. Of course, sheep can't jump, so you're not talking about a very high wall there, but more concerned about other predators jumping in, I suppose, so it would have to be high enough to have some protection against predators. And then there would be, with, at the, there would be this gate, there would be an opening in the, in the walled enclosure, and there would be a gate there, and at the gate they would always hire somebody to watch the sheepfold during the night while the shepherds would go and get some shut-eye. So you'd have a gatekeeper at the gate and the sheep safely inside the fold. And the idea was to protect the sheep. Matter of fact, uh, you know, that they should be free from predators at that point, but the biggest danger to sheep in the sheepfold were thieves who would try in the dark of night to try to climb over the wall. They couldn't go through the gate because of the gate, gatekeeper being there, but they would try to climb over the wall. Matter of fact, some sheepfolds actually, they put briars on the top of the wall to try to discourage thieves from doing that sort of thing. And then in the morning, the shepherds would all come, and they would come, and the gatekeeper would open the gate for them, allow them in, and they would come in, and they would call their own sheep. Typically, you'd have several flocks kept in one fold, and so each shepherd would come in and call his own sheep, and sheep would recognize his voice, and they would come and follow the shepherd to take him out to pasture. Well, this picture, you know, it says in verse 6 that the people standing there listening, which would have included Jesus' disciples and people that were curious about Jesus' teachings, as well as some of the Pharisees, they're all standing around him there. And it says, basically, that their reaction to Jesus painting this picture is, well, yeah, so what? We know that. That's sheep herding. We see it every day. What's the point? They don't get it. Again, they don't get it. Over and over and over, they don't get it. It's amazing Jesus kept using metaphors because nobody ever got his metaphors. But he, he, he steps back and says, okay, let me explain it to you. You know, if they had known the Old Testament scriptures better, they would have gotten it. Because that metaphor, that picture of shepherd and sheep as a relationship between Lord and his people is 
given over and over again in the Old Testament. I mean, Moses was a shepherd before he was called upon to lead God's people. He trained as a shepherd. And then it's interesting, at the end of Moses' life, he has this prayer. Maybe you've never noticed this prayer before. It's in Numbers 25. He's about to die. His work as shepherding or leading God's people is about to be done. And he prays because he's concerned about what's going to happen to God's people now that he was leaving as their leader. And this is his prayer. Listen to how he he words it. This is Numbers 27, beginning of verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And it goes immediately on to say that they appointed Joshua to take his place. But obviously, he's pointing forward to what Jesus is talking about here, the great shepherd. Matter of fact, Joshua's name means Jesus. Moses was praying praying that the Messiah would come so that the sheep would not be without their shepherd. David, of course, trained to be the leader of God's people by being a shepherd. And so much of his writing was put in the language of a shepherd. And he so often beautifully portrayed the relationship between God and his people as a shepherd and a sheep. And it's all through the Psalms. We read Psalm 23, the most beautiful depiction of that relationship between God and his people as being like a shepherd with his sheep. Psalm 95, Psalm 100. And it's such an apt description because we are so much like sheep. We are not like lions. We are not like pumas we're not like tigers we would like to pick those animals to depict ourselves but scripture uses sheep sheep are dumb sheep are helpless sheep are defenseless they're the rare animal that doesn't have any real natural defenses against any of their predators and they are prone to wander we are sheep who desperately need a good shepherd that's the biblical image. But the chapter from, from Old Test, the Old Testament that most clearly is tied to John chapter 10 is actually Ezekiel, actually Ezekiel 34. If you want to turn there with me for a moment. Ezekiel 34. What you're going to see is that John 10 is Jesus saying to the people of God, you remember what Ezekiel prophesied? What he prophesied about is happening right before your eyes. Let me just pick out a few portions from Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones and you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. See, it was true in Ezekiel's day too. It's always been true that there are a lot of bad shepherds among the flock of God's people. And so, as Ezekiel continues to give the word, as it continues to go on, as he's condemning the shepherds for fleecing the sheep instead of caring for them, 
It comes to verse 10 where he says that God's judgment is coming. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. God himself would come and rescue his sheep. That was the great hope. Men will fail us, but God himself will rescue his sheep. He will come. He'll bring judgment against the false shepherds, and he will rescue his sheep. He goes on to say in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search, out, search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture shall they feed on the mountains of Israel. God will not allow false shepherds to continually to abuse his flock, to destroy his sheep. He will come. He will rescue. And then the final word is that one day he would set one good shepherd over his whole flock. And that's promised in verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. The promised son of David, the eternal king, the Messiah, would come as the good shepherd and would reign over them eternally. That's how Jesus understood his mission. Jesus in John 10 is alluding to that passage and saying, I am that shepherd. I am the one who has been sent to rescue God's sheep, even from the hands of the leaders of the Old Testament church. That's why it says over in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus is doing his ministry, listen to how it describes his perspective. As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had come to rescue the sheep. And so then as we look at chapter 10 as we dig into exactly what he how he exegetes this this picture of the shepherd and his sheep he actually surprises us right away we expect him to start talking about how he's this good shepherd but that's not what he says is it he catches off guard he tends he loves to do that he surprises us and he says i am the door i am the gate to that sheepfold says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's a message here, first of all, to the leaders to say, I am the way of access to the sheep. You thieves outside the walls have no right to the sheep. You want to come to the sheep legitimately, you must come through me. I am the way to the sheep. The Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. That's how you gain access to the sheep. In Galatians 1, Paul said, if there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anyone preaches or teaches anything or anyone besides Christ crucified, 
Let him be accursed. He is a thief. Keep him out of the sheepfold. The second message is for the flock. Since he's the door, since he's the gate to the sheepfold, then he is the way to pasture. He is the way of life, the way to abundant life, the way to the Father. It is in Christ alone that we are saved and we are enabled to go in and out and find pasture, to lie down in green pastures, to lie down beside still waters. The only way is through Christ. False shepherds, like a thief, only want to steal and kill and destroy, he says. In other words, they lead for their own benefit, for their own pride. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or as he would say in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the door. He is the narrow gate. While everyone else tries to find the broad and easy way. That's why when leaders of this church, when we receive somebody into membership, we'll sit down and talk with them for a while because we want to get to know them. But the only criteria for receiving them into membership into the church is that they are disciples of Jesus Christ. That they have committed their lives to Christ. That he is their shepherd. That they are coming to the Father through him and through him alone. It is on that basis alone that we receive somebody into membership into our church because that is the way into the sheepfold. Through Christ. We're always tempted to want to add other things. You know, you must believe in Christ and believe in this and this and this and this. Or we must believe in Christ and do this and this and this. No. You must have a relationship with Christ by faith because he is the door to the sheepfold and he is the way out to the pasture, to the abundant life. The second part, verses 11, start, it starts in verse 11 and goes to verse 18. Jesus then digs into the more obvious part of the metaphor where he says, I am the good shepherd. And so again, but he catches us off guard. You know, when you think about Jesus, the good shepherd, you think of Psalm 23. You know, he leads us to pasture. He gives us still waters. He gives us peace and all the blessings of shalom, all the blessings of the kingdom. He doesn't start there, does he? The very first thing he says is that I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Most important that we get that first. He lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 12, Jesus compares himself to the Jewish leaders and he calls them hired hands. Now, it's interesting because what would happen? What, what, if, a, what if a shepherd wanted to take a three-day vacation? What if he wanted to take a trip? He would have to hire a substitute shepherd. I don't know if there's a union for them in Israel. Or I don't know where you find a substitute shepherd, but they were basically hired hands. You would pay them to temporarily come and watch the flock for you so you could get away for a day or two or whatever you needed to do. Jesus says, you know what, these spiritual leaders, they're like that. In the sense that when danger comes, when the flock is in danger, don't rely on them to protect you because they're there for the paycheck. They're invested only insofar as their paycheck is worth. And they're not going to risk anything, let alone life itself, to protect a flock of sheep if a wolf is coming. They're going to flee. They're going to run for their life because they're in it for themselves and what they can get out of it. Their concern is purely mercenary. But really, think of what a a regular shepherd would do. What if a regular shepherd had his flock and a wolf were to be 
coming up over the horizon and, and prowling, ready to attack the flock. What would a regular shepherd do? He would risk his life, probably, to a certain point, because that's his livelihood. He's invested long-term in this flock, but he wouldn't lay down his life voluntarily. No shepherd would do that. What shepherd would die voluntarily for his sheep? He might risk his life, but he would never lay down his life. And that's exactly what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd because I voluntarily lay down my life for the sheep. Normally, the death of the shepherd would be disastrous for the flock. As Jesus said before he went to the cross, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But they needed to understand that the means by which they gained that green pasture, the still waters, the blessings of the kingdom, was through him laying down his life. Neither the Sanhedrin, nor Herod, nor Pilate, nor the Roman soldiers, nor Satan himself was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was not a martyr. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah said, Hundreds upon hundreds of years earlier, he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on to say, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And when the last sin was paid for, when the last sin was paid for, the scriptures tell us, that he said it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He laid down his life. It was not taken from him. When the soldiers came to put the men on the cross out of their misery as they typically did, they came to Christ and they were surprised that he was already dead because he had already voluntarily laid down his life. He had fulfilled his mission. He had rescued the sheep. The good shepherd became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says that he did it not unto the end of death, but unto the end of life. He goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, let me read those for you again. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He did it as an act of victory. He laid down his life in order to take it up again. He conquered sin by dying for us and then conquered the grave by rising again from the dead. He is the good shepherd who takes us through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side where there is abundant life in the pastures and the presence of God forever. He mentions that he didn't only do it for the flock, his flock, his chosen people within the sheepfold of Israel. He talks about another fold. I know when I was first a believer, I thought, wow, Jesus must have people on other planets, you know? He's got people in another fold. They just got to go save. No. He's calling people in that day, in that moment, he's calling his people out of the sheepfold of the Old Testament church of Israel, but there are other folds. There's the Roman fold, there's the Syrian fold, there's the Egyptian fold. He would be calling people, his people, out of every nation. And that's the great mystery that the Apostle Paul was sent 
to reveal is that now the church would be an international church and God's people would be called out of every nation, out of every tribe, coming and praising him with every tongue. That's the mission of Christ. He laid down his life to rescue the sheep. Having rescued them, he enters into relationship with them. It says that the, the good shepherd not only lays down his life for his sheep, but he goes on to talk about how he calls and cares for and knows his sheep. Back in verse 3, it said the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Have you been born again? Because that's the only way that you have ears to hear the voice of the shepherd. He gives the gift of new birth, a new heart, new ears, new eyes. He awakens you spiritually so that you can hear his call and recognize his voice. And if you're born again, then you will respond to his voice. That's the promise of scripture. He calls and you come because he's given you ears to hear. What's the, what is your response to the word of God? Because that is the voice of Christ. This, the Bible, this is the voice of Christ. And how you respond to it determines whether you are one of his sheep or not. Do you have ears to hear? He says in verse 14, I know my own and they know me just as, my father, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. You know, when you think about the relationship, one thing I didn't highlight about the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is that it was a long-term relationship. That's very much unlike other, other aspects of livestock management. So many other livestock types of livestock are managed so that we can eat them. But they didn't, typically in first century uh, Jewish culture, the sheep were used for wool and not for food. And so it was a long-term relationship. Season in, season out, the same sheep would provide the wool. And these shepherds, every day, were spending every waking hour with these sheep. And they knew them. That's why they could call them by name. And they did have names for them. I don't know, floppy ears, brown nose, I don't know, whatever they called them. But they had names for all their sheep. And they knew them intimately. Because they spent so much time with them. I mean, I've got two dogs. I love my dogs. I don't spend every waking hour with my dogs. But even in the limited amount of time that I spend my dogs, I've, I've been with one of my dogs for 14 and a half years. I know him. I know his little body he, he communicates so much to me. His body language, the way he acts, the, way, the, the height of his tail, the little noises he makes, the, the way he tilts his head, all of it communicates a ton of vocabulary to me. I understand him. I know him. I, he has certain sounds that say, feed me, and certain sounds that say, I need to go outside. There's other sounds that say, you know, there's a, there's a stranger in the yard. I mean, he's got a whole way of communicating with me, and I know him, and I, you could walk in the room and not pick up on any of that, but I get it all because I know him so well. These shepherds knew their sheep better than that. And Jesus says, that's what my relationship with my people is like. He says, the hairs on our head are numbered. He knows you far better than you know yourself if you belong to him. David must have reflected on this when he wrote so many of the Psalms, but particularly think of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Why is it wonderful? It's only wonderful because he's already laid down his life for us. That kind of knowledge of you would not be wonderful if your sins were still on your record. 
It's only wonderful because he's already laid down his life to receive you to himself as his sheep. He loves you and accepts you unconditionally and knows you far better than you know yourself. Until Christ returns, the church will continue to be plagued by bad leadership. It's always been true. It always will be true. Praise God for the good ones. But there are a lot of bad ones out there, and it's reality while the church waits for its true shepherd, the one good shepherd to come. But I think it's important to point out here that when Jesus lays out this indictment against the thieves, the hired hands, the robbers, he lays out this indictment against them and points out how bad the leaders are over his people, that in the context of that, he doesn't immediately say, okay, let me give you an eight-hour seminar on what good biblical leadership looks like so that you can go out and find good leaders. That's not what he did, is it? You know what he did? He said, I'm the good shepherd. You need to make sure that you're looking to me as your real spiritual leader. Now, by doing that, he's not dismissing the importance of good biblical leaders. But the real issue here is, are you looking to Christ? Is he the shepherd? You know, I I read an article recently in the New York Times, actually, and I'm not sure why the New York Times was getting into it, but it's an article about pastoral burnout. And I read a lot of articles about that. It's, It's a major problem in my profession. And it said that in the article, and who knows what parameters they're using, but it said 40% of American pastors say they are burnt out in ministry. Even more disturbing, it said 57% 57 of American pastors would choose to do something else if they felt they had really had the opportunity to do it. And I think about that, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Sins in our own lives as pastors, and you know, wrong expectations in our own lives, and things that we're doing wrong that, that creates burnout. We don't have enough faith. We're not really resting in the Lord. There's lots of reasons like that. But I also tell it's, it's also partly the congregation's faults because they're looking to their pastors to be Christ. They're looking to their pastors to be the good shepherd. They want to make celebrities out of them. They want to go to the pastor for what they should really be going to Christ for. And we pastors can't live up to that. That expectation will crush us. You need Christ. You need to be seeking Christ. You need to be only following pastors, as Paul says, as they follow Christ. Your leaders should be pointing you to Christ by the way they live and what they speak all the time. It's all about him, not about us. It's one of the reasons, and I'll give a little plug here for Presbyterianism. It's one of the reasons I love Presbyterian church government, and I believe it's biblical. is because we do not put the preacher up on a pedestal and say he is the leader, the celebrity, the shepherd of the church. We are an elder-led church. Every local church has multiple elders. We have seven elders in this church, leading this church. And they all are pastors, because the word pastor means shepherd. And that's what a ruler is. He's a shepherd. That's a protection for me to keep me from being looked to as the shepherd because I'm not the shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. This is a transitional community and I'm speaking to people, you know, for pastors, I'm kind of rare among pastors, I'm speaking to a lot of people that may not be here in a few years. 
That's a good thing, by the way, because hopefully, I mean, it could be a bad thing, but it's a good thing usually because we're sending you off to do ministry in other fields. But because of that, there's a lot of you here that are going to be looking for another church one day and another pastor and another group of leaders. And I hope that as you study this passage, there's a lot of things you look for when you look for a church. What's the worship style like? What, you know, are there people in my age demographic? Are there, you know, is the time of service suit my schedule? I mean, there are all kinds of things you look at when you look for a church. But let me give you the one non-negotiable based on what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10. Does the leadership point you to Christ? Is Christ crucified the message of the church? Is the Bible given as the voice of Christ and is Christ speaking continuously to his church through his word? And do the leaders constantly imitate him and point you to him? That's the non-negotiable. Everything else is window dressing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good shepherd. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We can't believe that he laid down his life for us. We were so undeserving. But Lord, may we rejoice today that the wonderful picture of Psalm 23 has been lived out in our lives. He has led us to green pastures. He has led us to still waters. We are blessed beyond imagination. We belong to the Father because we've been bought with the blood of his own son. Thank you that the good shepherd became the lamb of God who takes away our sin. We rejoice in that salvation today. In Christ's name, amen.